Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 258. I hope that everyone had a truly liberating and emancipating and freeing Pesach. We're literally coming straight from the holiday. We just concluded yesterday, Achran Shal Pesach, in Chutz Laaretz. And today, Isru Chag, which means the day that is bound to the holiday, and it still has the echo, you can say, the after-effect of the Yom Tov, Zman Cheru the time of our redemption, the time of our freedom, affecting us. And this becomes the bridge to bring all the freedoms and the Yetzirah Mitzrayim, leaving the constraints and fears and insecurities that we have in our lives, that we were redeemed from and we were freed from on Pesach, to be able to bring it into the entire year. So here we have an interface that stands right between the holiday and the days that follow. However, unexpected to all of us, something occurred yesterday on Achrasha Pesach, on the last day of Pesach, the day that is a culmination and summation and the conclusion of Zman Cheir Senu, 3,331 years ago. That the God revealed Himself and redeemed the Jewish people, and we celebrate that each year and every year under all circumstances. And yet, yesterday, a synagogue, a shul, a Chabad center in Poway, California, at the outskirts of San Diego, was attacked yet again by a, I don't want to call it a lunatic call it simply as it is a criminal, a murderer, killing one innocent woman, wounding the rabbi and others, and who knows what else it could have been, far worse, al-tiftach peh. So we're all shaken by that. And of course the immediate question comes up of all days in the year, Pesach, which begins with Leil Shemurim, that God is protecting us. How could such a thing be? So as we know, we don't have answers to such questions. God's mysterious ways. We have to ask ourselves what we should do about it and how to respond. We don't respond just by shock and grief, which which is natural and obvious. And of course, our hearts go out to the soul that was taken from us and to her family and to all the loved ones. And for that matter, the entire community. And in the broadest sense, we're all part of that community. So that is a given. We have to take it even further. The way we've always responded to tragedy has always been with great commitment and more intensification of good. You have to see the video, the interview, the statement made by the Rabbi Goldstein, who was right there and was being targeted and was actually injured, how he speaks about our approach to this, which has come straight from the Rebbe, the Chassidish approach to any tragedy, even one that just literally just happened on the last day of Pesach, that though we don't have answers and we cry out to Hashem to finally bring the Geula and Mashiach where such senseless and brutal crimes don't ever happen again, we do whatever we can to bring good into this world. The criminal is to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law and maybe once and for all this country will look at the whole situation with firearms But we all know that's not just firearms. It's also the hate, the ignorance, 
the distortions of blatant anti-Semitism, and that has to be a full-out assault against any such racist talk, because talk leads to actions, unfortunately. But the most important thing from a Jewish approach and a Chassidish approach is not just the defense. We have to definitely up security in every religious place, make sure such things never happen ever again. This was six months to the day from the Pittsburgh massacre that took place in Pittsburgh in a synagogue there. And above all, as I said, the, the, is the offense. We are charged with a mission to bring kindness and goodness to the world to the point that would eradicate and eliminate any such darkness. Obviously, we have not yet achieved the goal or else such a thing could not have happened. So our commitment and our dedication and our resolution is to double and triple our worship, our prayers, our study, our commitment and our actions, good deeds to every person we can reach to the point where it has a ripple effect and ultimately, as I said, eradicates and eliminates any semblance of such behavior, of such talk, of such thoughts. At the, end of, at the end of the day, people have free will, but we have to do our part to spread that so much light that there would be no room and no tolerance, zero tolerance, for any such darkness. But at this point, we grieve, and we sit shiva, and we mourn for the loss, and for the death, and for the shock and grief of the entire community. And we do whatever we can to, to console them. Our words go out and we pray to God and we cry to God and we beseech God. Then the last day of Pesach, please bring us redemption and Geula that we can be reunited with this woman that was just taken from us and all the Jewish people, men and women who died on Kiddush Hashem and all our loved ones all the way back to Moshe Rabbeinu himself. So just as it was in Nisan Nigalu, just as in Nisan this month, the month of Passover, we were redeemed, so too will we be redeemed in Nisan, that this is called the Chedesh Agula, the month of redemption. Just as it was in Egypt after 210 years of genocide, of slavery, of discrimination, of the worst types, we finally were redeemed. So too will we see wonders when Mashiach comes, which of course is the ultimate consolation. And yesterday's Haftorah, that the entire theme, is Mashiach. The rise of Mashiach and Mashiach coming and bringing and filling the world with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea, which eliminates it says, there will be no more evil and no more destruction including a destruction that happened yesterday morning, because the entire universe, the entire earth, will be filled with divine knowledge as waters cover the sea. What does knowledge have to do with destruction? You see many smart people, and they can be destructive. But Das is Hashem. Chassidus explains that Deya Das creates, Mechen the Gadlus, Das creates the ability to tolerate, and to coexist even with someone that you may disagree with. In the Teva of Noyach reigned that, a taste of that, Das. That's why the creatures there did not attack each other. It was a taste of Ga'or, Zevim Keves, like we read in the Avteira, 
that a lamb or a wolf shall lie with a lamb, even though naturally they're mortal enemies and the wolf would love to devour a lamb, because Deus Hashem reigns, that allows the ability that even forces and animals and creatures and human beings, of course, that may have different, opi- different opinions can live side by side, a harmony within diversity. That's what Deus Hashem does. And that's what Achan Shem Pesach really conveys to us. So despite that there are still remnants of pain and loss and death, as we just sadly and tragically witnessed, we still do not give up on the march that we've been promised, that we are now at the threshold of the Geula, and that we have to just do our small part to finish the job and create the tipping point where, the, where a cumulative good, the millions and billions of good deeds that have been done over thousands of years will ultimately erupt in a revolution of goodness and kindness, a spiritual revolution that the entire world will be completely consumed as the waters cover the sea with the knowledge and knowing of God. So we should not be perturbed, even though when these things seem to be a setback, and it seems to demoralize us, and it could have that power, we cannot give up. We march forward, and the honor of this woman whose life was taken, and those that were hurt, and all the entire community, we double and triple our efforts to bring a point where there will be no such possibility for such evil acts which goes side by side, not to neglect what I mentioned earlier, all the defensive measures we need to take, all the protection and all the prosecution to be able to deter and, and not allow any such events ever again to happen. This is the Torah Chassidosh reaction, based on what we've heard so many times from the Rebbe, and what we see in the Torah and the Psukim, and the Halachis and Hilchus Tshuva from the Rambam, and other places that address how we look at a catastrophe, at a tragedy, and how we should respond. With that said, we are now, as I said, Pesach. we're in the glow of Pesach, and despite this event, Pesach still has its effect on us and can have tremendous ability to empower us to achieve exactly that, Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, with all its interpretations, the leaving of, the freeing of, constraints, limits, fears, insecurities, death, killings, and so on. And this is the day that is the bridge, the interface between Achan Shah Pesach, the last day of Pesach, and the rest of the year. <clears throat> we're also, this week, we're also reading the Parshas Achrei. This coming Shabbos, we'll read Parshas Achrei. Additionally, this coming, this end of this week, is also the 28th of Nisan. 28th of Nisan, 28 years ago, the Rebbe spoke the famous Sikha in Tavshin Nun Aleph, where he spoke about exactly what I just mentioned, that he, the Rebbe said, I finished everything I can do. Do your part in bringing the Geula. So, of course, this is a fitting theme coming straight from Pesach, which is all about redemption and Geula. As I said, Benisan Niglu, Benisan Asidun the all about Mashiach. So in that dramatic and highly emotional sicha of Chavches Nissen, the Rebbe spoke about those words and said, here's the mission I'm giving to you. Now this was not new words. The ideas were already stated. As I mentioned a number of times, Purim Tavshim Zayin, the Rebbe said, basically the same theme. 
which would mean four years earlier. But we're still now, still not having Mashiach. So what's the story? That question continues to plague us. But just as I said with this tragedy, even setbacks, even things that seemingly have not yet come to fruition, our approach has to always be like a winner. We do not give up. We don't get resigned. We don't retreat. If something didn't work, it means we have to do something different or something more and increase. And that's the message of this entire chapter. Achrei as well. What was the story of Achrei, Mois, Shnei Bnei Aaron? Two chapters back, we read about how the two sons of Aaron, Nodav and Aviu, sacrificed themselves. On Kiddush Hashem, they went into the Holy of Holies and they were consumed by an alien strange fire. They didn't do it right. Their intentions were good. They were coming from, as the Erechaim writes, with a deep passion and a deep love and a deep yearning and longing to connect to the divine. But as Chassidus says, it was a rotzei without a shuv. It was a passionate yearning without integration and internalization and returning back grounded in this world. So in this chapter, which is a follow-up, a continuation, Hashem says, God says, After the death of the two children of Aaron, here is how here is how you shall come into the holy. He tells Moshe to tell Aaron, and for generations to come, if you want to approach me, you want to experience me in my full glory, here's how you do it. And he gives the entire guidelines of how we have a rotze and a shuv. Because spiritual ecstasy, a spiritual high, is a beautiful, powerful thing. But like every powerful thing, needs to be done with the proper way. Because if not, it can consume you and overwhelm you. Similar to the story that we have in Rabbi Akiva and his three colleagues, Dalit, the Arba, Shanich, Pardis, the four that went into the orchard, which is a euphemism for having a spiritual experience. And what happened? One died, like Nodavinaviyu. <clears throat> one went mad, and one became an apostate. Only Rabbi Akiva, Nichnas Bishalom, Vyatsur Bishalom. He entered in peace and exited in peace because Bizeis, he knew the secret of how. The proper humility, the proper intention, that it cannot just be about me wanting to have divine pleasure. It has to be driven by a higher cause that's higher than you. Or else you can get consumed by the pleasure itself, as, as positive as it may be. But it's not the purpose and the kavona, the intention and objective for which you were created. We were not created, the world was not created, and we were not created to create chaos to create a void, a passion that has no internalization. But L'Shevis Yitzhara, to civilize, to establish a home for the divine in this world in a settled way, in an appropriate way, in a grounded way, in an internalized way. So the lesson is to each one of us. Obviously we may not be on that level of Nodav and Aviyu, or the level of Rabbi Akiva and the others, but each of us in our own way have what we say every day in Shema. So we have that's a love that's commensurate and relative to your heart and to your nefesh. But then comes with all your might, with all your ma'id, even more. So we all have a more where we go beyond ourselves. 
we go outside of our comfort zone, where we go beyond what we're naturally capable of. And that's where we need to have check it with a proper humility and bitl to know that it has to be grounded and internalized. So coming from Pesach, when we have that type of redemption, and we can reach great heights, Israchag, and this week of Achri, this year, which is a leap year, teaches us Achri Meshne Bnei Achri, after, the whole parsha is called Achri. We don't even say Meshne Bnei because after Pesach, what's, the, what's our role now is to internalize and integrate the Cherus, the freedom, the Pesach, the transcendence that we experience on the holiday. And how do we do it? We began counting the Omer, the second day of Pesach. Vesvarta means to count. It also means to relate, to tell the narrative. Sipur. And it also comes from the word sapir, illuminate. What was the point? After taking, taking Pesach, the transcendence, and internalizing it in the process of zichuch and birur hamidis, to refine and to repair and improve our emotions. The seven times seven emotions, mamochres hashabbos, Sheva Shaboses, seven weeks, and each week has seven days, so every day has Chesed Sheva Chesed, Gvura Sheva Chesed. We finished yesterday the first week, now in the week of Gvura, and each day has its appropriate and its respective and corresponding emotion that we focus on to refine, not just to be lifted up and to be overwhelmed by the spiritual transcendence of Pesach, but to internalize it in our systems in the Bechol of Ofcha, and the Bechol Nafshecha, and the Bechol Meidecha, internalized by taking, by taking stock and soul-searching and introspection each day as we count down toward Matan Teir Shvuas, which follows 49 days from the second day of Pesach. The 50th day will be Shvuas. So all this comes together in an eloquent way where we see that the Jewish calendar is actually a directive, a guide to us, teaching us how to actually live our lives, and the lessons are many. Are many. I just suggested one of them, Pesach, the Achrei, which, which is and internalizing this transcendent experience, and actually improving our lives, becoming more refined human beings. You may be aware of the book I, I authored called A Spiritual Guide to Counting the Homer, where actually based on different memoriam of Chassidus, and other Sifri Kabbalah documented a daily, a daily meditation, a daily questions, and a daily exercise, what Chesed Shebe Chesed is, what Gvur Shebe Chesed is. And now you can also get it in a completely renewed and refurbished, um, updated app, My Omer, both in, both in iOS and Android, where you can follow along and actually, actually input your preference wherever you are in the world when you want to be reminded for the counting, and it includes an excerpt from the book, the thought and the meditation and exercise for each of the days. So, please take advantage of that, and this is a good opportunity as well to make mention, since we've been doing this program 258th week, that please go to MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife, where you can find all the previous archives they're all time-stamped in the YouTube version on the desktop or laptop. You also can submit any question, anonymous, completely anonymous and confidential question, and I'll address it in time. There are many questions, and each week I, I choose several of them. 
as well as reading the essays, including the new essays from this latest 2019 fifth annual My Life Chassidus Applied Essay Contest, which whose winners we announced right before Pesach, the, the episode before Pesach in Yud Aleph Nisan. Okay. So before we continue, let me just give you a little more, some more, um, some um, cross references to Isur Chag Pesach, Chofches Nisan, and Parshas Achrei. I'm going to be speaking about Chofches Nisan a little more now with a few questions. So here are some episodes that I address these issues. As I said, they're all available in our archives. Episode 64, 65, 113, 159, 160, 162, 208, and 210. Okay, being that as is Chav Chesnissen and those heartfelt words were um, said by the Rebbe, and we still don't have the Gula here in the fullest sense of the word. So here are two questions I'm going to address regarding this. One is regarding the Rebbe's prophecy of Mashiach and his generation. So someone asked, are the Rebbe's words on 28th of Nisan, as I said, were said, 28 years ago, actually, still relevant today, or did we miss an opportunity? Because there the Rebbe said, clearly, I did everything I can, do whatever you can, and finally bring the Gula. So that's one question. And I'll read it out in more detail. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Or actually, it's another question in the same vein. I have a question that you've probably addressed before, but I wasn't able to find it on your site. The question is regarding the Rebbe's prophecy of Mashiach and his generation. I was born in 1998, four years after the Rebbe passed away. Recently, I've learned the Sikhs of Tavshin Nun through Tavshin Nun Beis. That's 1990 through 92, approximately. And saw how much the Rebbe talked about Mashiach and his prophecy of Mashiach in his generation. Now that the Rebbe would be 117 years old, <clears throat> which just began this year, Aleph Nissen, and has passed away a quarter of a century ago, it's hard for me to conclude that we're still in his generation. One possible conclusion is that the Rebbe was expressing his wishes, that, his wishes that Mashiach come in his generation, but alas, that wasn't to be. However, I don't read that in the Rebbe's words. It wasn't just a message of hope. It was a message of that this was to be the generation of Mashiach. He even went as far as to say that Mashiach had come, we had just needed to open our eyes. It's equally hard for me to believe that we're still in this generation, while no, in his generation, while no Rebbe has replaced him, it may be that no Rebbe ever replaces him. His message, I give it over to you, may mean that he wanted each of us to carry his message forth without a centralized leader. Now that we are here decades later without Mashiach having come, what are we to make of the Rebbe's message in hindsight? Did that generation miss an opportunity? Are we still to believe we're in some magical or specifically heavenly ordained moment for Mashiach's arrival? More than just a chakalei b'chol that we wait for him every day, which of course goes on all the days from the beginning of time. Thanks, a confused bocher. Okay, now we did speak about this topic, and I'm going to give some references here. Episode 7, 22, 183, 211 and 212, 216, 237, 238. The reason I'm making the cross-references is because you can see from that number, just the sheer number of 
times I've spoken about this, that this is a very central topic. I've talked about it from many different angles. And whatever I say now is only complementing or even perhaps repeating or summing up that which was already said earlier. So I highly recommend listening to those episodes to get a bigger picture. So let's make one thing clear. It is not the Rebbe that said Mashiach is going to come, it's Hashem that said Mashiach is going to come. This is a Teda message that the Abishtah said he created the world in Gemara Sanhedrin, Le'inivra'elem, Ela Bishul Mashiach. The whole world was created to realize the purpose of creation, which is the times of Mashiach. What the Rebbe emphasized was that this is now, we've finally reached the threshold. After all the years of work, we finally reached the threshold. And indeed, the Rebbe said this already in the first Maimer, the first official discourse, Basilegani Tovshin Yudalov, that this is the seventh generation from the Alta Rebbe, the generation that will bring down the Shechina, down, down below in this world, just like Moshe, with the seventh generation from Avram Avinu, who brought the Shechina down when he built the Mishkan. And the final redemption through Mashiach will bring the, the Beis Amigdash Ashlishi, as the Rebbe discusses in that Maimed. And this was the central theme of the Rebbe's Nisiyas and leadership till this very day. So it's not just some type of out of the blue. It also comes after seven generations, six generations before, of spreading Chassidus, where Mashiach told the Baal Shem Tev, that he will come, Mashiach will come, when your wellsprings of Chassidus will spread outward. So it's not in a vacuum. When the Rebbe said it, it means it's a logical end of a process. And you can't reverse the process. It only goes one way. The goodness, which is eternal, of every good deed. Remember, evil is erased. But goodness accumulates and builds, and it can never be erased, God forbid. So as it accumulates, it can only grow. If we were close to the ghoul yesterday, we're closer now. If we were close to the ghoul 28 years ago, we're even closer now. There's no question about that. There's no way of going backwards. Especially when the Rebbe made it clear, put him Tavshim Zion, as I said, you can listen to the Sikha, that this is now not just an Eserotzen, an opportune time, a Ketz, which means also a, a, a possible time. No, this is, an, this is actually it. Why Mashiach Taka didn't come? The Rebbe says, Taka But the message of Chavches Nissen remains, there's no question about it. I absolutely cannot subscribe to anyone who would suggest that it does not remain, that we lost an opportunity. Yes, we may have lost a lot of opportunities in our lives, but that doesn't mean the opportunity is lost. It means it could have been right then, we could have done what we had to do, but now we still have that opportunity. And as long as we continue and forge forward, and as I said earlier, we have to put our heads together, as the Rebbe said at the end of the 28th, Nisan Sicha, there should be one, two, three of you that will discuss Vatsatan and Vitsatan, will strategize what to do and how to do. So as long as we are not, don't have the result we want, that's exactly our mission. Without any question, no change at all. If anything, we have even more that was done. But clearly, that which had to be done was not yet done. That's my approach to it. <clears throat> and exactly as you said correctly, it wasn't just some opportune time. It's clearly from all the sikhs, we have a job to do. So what we have to do is not just complain and say, what's going to be? What happened with the Rebbe's promise? Adults ask the question, what am I going to do? That's how we were trained by the Rebbe. What are you going to do? The Rebbe's first mime, Rebbe Salagani, Tavshin Yud, Aleph, he says similar about himself. 
He says, what are we going to do? We, we don't have answers to why certain things happen. We have to brace ourselves. We have to girdle ourselves up, motivate ourselves, and do what has to be done. That's what people who are soldiers do. They continue the war, the battle. In this case, a war and battle to bring goodness and kindness and mitzvahs and learn about Gula Mashiach, live with it, internalize it, and all the other things I've discussed many times of methods of how. I'm not going to discuss now the how because I cross-reference those episodes I discussed different ways how based on the Rebbe Sichas. Okay. Another question in this spirit is this. What's the practical difference between the existence of Mashiach and the revelation of Mashiach? Hi, Rabbi. Thanks so much for your amazing program. It's the highlight of my week. The Sikh of Nunbez for last week, okay, this, letter, this, uh, this um, question was written around Parsha Teldus. She's referring to a Sikh in Tavshin Nunbez, says that has left me very confused. There the Rebbe makes a distinction between the Mitzvah's existence of Mashiach and his Galas revelation of Mashiach, saying that we have both already. What's the difference? Also, what does it mean practically, practically to be Makabal Pnei Mashiach? Okay. So being again, it's a, 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 we're dealing with Chav Ches Nissen, I thought appropriate to bring this question as well. There are many other questions that have come in about Mashiach, but we use them, reserve them for different times. And hopefully we don't even have to. When Mashiach will come, all these questions will automatically be answered. So what is the practical difference? First of all, let's define existence and revelation. Something can exist and not be revealed. It's all the time that way. We have an neshama. It exists inside of you. The question, is it revealed? It means, is it being expressed? We have many talents and skills that are within us, but it doesn't mean you're expressing it. There was once a chassid of the Alter Rebbe who had a good mind. And the Alter Rebbe demanded from him, why don't you learn more? You can be a lambda. So he says, Rebbe, I have the capacity to learn and be a lambda. And the Alter Rebbe said to him, just like a ganif, a thief, is not someone who could steal, but someone who does steal, a lambda is not someone who could be a lambda, but someone is a lambda. So could be is a potential. It means it may exist a potential. But actualization is the whole key to everything, to bring it out. Mashiach is the same thing. We know from Tzfarim, as brought in Kusayr in some of the Sikhs, just like Moshe Rabbeinu, till 80 years old, what was he doing? He was a shepherd for many years. Before that, he lived in Mitzrayim. Before that, he grew up in the house of Pare. But until age 80, when Hashem revealed himself to him, Moshe did not know what his destiny is. But the potential was there. Then Hashem says to Moshe, I'm choosing you to go to Pare." And you should tell them to let my people go, Avduni, and they should come serve me, to lead the Jewish people out of Mitzrayim that we just celebrated Pesach. And then lead them to Kriyas Yamsov and then to Matan Teira, Moshe Kibbal Teira, Messinai, as the Teira documents. So there was the point, Moshe was there, he existed, including the potential to be the shepherd, Reya Neman of Klal Yisrael, Raya Mehemna. And yet there's a time when he becomes revealed as such. The revealed is when Hashem told him, now is your time. Same thing with Mashiach. In every generation there's a person who's worthy to be Mashiach, says the Chsam Sefer, as it says in other Svarim. That's a Mitzias. His Galus means when he's revealed, and people see it, and it's expressed in a real way. Now, in Revelation itself, there can be stages. Look at the Rambam. The Rambam says that the identifying the criteria of Mashiach, someone that comes from Beis David, 
the house of David HaMelech, <clears throat> and someone who's committed to Teir Mitzvahs and committed to inspire and impress upon other people, Yaakov called that everyone else should uh, fulfill Teir Mitzvahs. And it says, and then, Yilchem Elchemes Hashem, he'll fight God's war, whatever that means. He is considered Becheskes Mashiach. That means he's already considered somewhat type of revelation, not fully because it's assumed, presumed to be Mashiach. But it's not Vada yet. It could not, unfortunately not end up being that way. So you see a state of revelation through these different criteria that I just mentioned. Then comes, Mashiach will rebuild the Beis HaMikdash Bim Kameh. The third base amigdash in the, on the Temple Mount. And he'll gather all the exiles of Jews, wherever they may be. Then you know it's Mashiach Vadai. Because then it's in full Isgalos. So the difference between existence and revelation, I gave a number of examples in Mashiach's context, is so, the song can exist, but we've been many generations that we always had a Mashiach in that generation. But unfortunately, we didn't merit for it to be revealed as such. So the same thing in our generation. There's the existence, there's the revelation. Now, about that we have both already was because the Rebbe would describe many different signs of Mashiach already being present, the world being ready, whether it was the fall of communism, the, the Persian Gulf War, the advent of technology, the political changes, the freedoms of Eden, of the Jewish people, the many things in the world that we already began seeing a glimpse at least, and glimmers of Mashiach and Geula. As far as your question, what does it practically mean to be Makabal Pnei Mashiach? My interpretation, and I'm sure others have different, Makabal Pnei Mashiach, Mashiach is a melech and a rav, an authority and a teacher. As the Tzemach Tzedek explains in the mitzvahs, Minoy Melech, in Derech Mitzvah Accepting a king means accepting his authority and accepting his teachings. If someone does that, that's a form of Kabbalah's Pnei Mashiach. Now, are there other ways, perhaps, and I'm not going to go into an argument about it, but the most practical way that we were taught was for us to embrace the teachings of the Rebbe and the Chassidus and his directives, and that's a form of Kabbalah's Pnei Mashiach in a practical way. And we do that by learning in Yoni Gul Mashiach and living by it. And as I cross-referenced already before, there are, more top, there are more places where this was discussed, and I gave you the episodes earlier. Okay. And of course, all these topics deserve a lot more. They deserve more than five minutes and ten minutes, even more than an hour. But the, style, the, the form of this program is to deal with things, hopefully, in shorter ways, and refer, cross-reference, to other episodes where this same idea was discussed more at length. Okay, next question. What guidelines can we use to find the right yeshiva for our child? And one of the reasons I chose this top question now, even though it came in a while ago, the Rebbe would always, Achan Shapesach and the Fabreng, and talk about Chinuch, being the Chinuch leads to the summer months and then to the new season, about the Chinuch sending children to camps, Altar HaSakedish, and so on. So it's appropriate to talk about this here. Our son is currently in eighth grade in a small cheder in our Shlichas town. And we are beginning the search for a yeshiva that would be, good fit, would be a good fit for him. 
What would be some of the most important things to look for as we begin our research? With so many different yeshivas out there, it is a bit overwhelming. Some direction on the matter would be very much appreciated. Thank you. So I have talked about this in previous episodes, actually many, many times. I'll give you soon some references when I deal with the next question. Um, but generally speaking, since it's chaneich lanad al which means we educate a child according to his way, and every child has their own way. So it's very important to customize and not just cookie-cutter model. So critical for parents to recognize what their child's strengths are. And second point, to speak to other parents, either from your own community or parents who have similar age children or a little older, and ask them experiences of different schools that you get references to, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, Obviously, to talk to the faculty of the school. So if we're talking about a student that has an average student without any particularly unique challenges or unique strengths, so then you discuss it with the school. If they have, if the child does have unique, either is a very smart child, smarter than average, or weaker than average, then it's important to talk whether the school is custom, customized for that and can deal with it. Uh, additionally, obviously, there's, if you have older children, see their experiences. But this requires research. I would not suggest you just send to the first school to look into it, especially if you're sending a child away from home. You want the child to have the best experience possible. And you have to monitor it, see how the child experiences things. We live in a world today where many schools are good schools, but they may not be for everybody. And it's important to find the right match, especially at this formative age, which um, will shape this young man same thing with girls, for that matter, into an adult. Uh, some other guidelines I would, I would suggest to make it less overwhelming is try to break down in your own mind what you think would be the optimal school for the needs of your child. For example, some children need to be challenged a lot. Some children should be writing. Some children need hands-on tutoring. Some are very good with text. Others are not so good with text, but they're good with ideas. Some are more emotionally related to education, some more cerebrally. The more you can identify your child's personality, the easier it is to find the right match. You may not find a perfect match, but you know what you're dealing with. And I really reiterate again the importance of customizing it, finding a way to find the right school for your child. And it's not important necessarily to go to the school where everybody's going or the most popular one. It has to be the one that's best for your child. More, more than that, I would suggest speaking to a mentor, to a mashpia, to a teacher, to someone that you can trust, that may, knew this, may know the scene, knows your child, knows you, and can help you with guiding you and giving different input in when you make this important decision. I want to make a few more points that the Rebbe would often make about schools. They may go without saying, but still important to state. When we're looking for chinuch, the most important thing of all is instilling our children not just knowledge, but Yiddish Shemayim. Yiddish Shemayim means a sense of yoke of heaven, that they're here for a purpose, that God created them, and that they have a sense of accountability and responsibility, feeling that gift and feeling that their life is dedicated to that. Yiddish Shemayim. Yiddish Shemayim, however, can be taught 
unfortunately, sometimes in ways that are actually destructive, with fear, with anger, with punishment. But it can be taught with love, by role modeling. When you have a teacher or a series of teachers that live up to what they preach, that you see them as role models, refined people, people you can speak to, people you can have a discussion with, you can even criticize in a constructive way. And they have a humility to be able to talk to you. This is a role model that you want your children to have. So finding schools that have such examples and they cherish these values, that would be a tremendous important criteria. So if you have to weigh the two, and you have other schools that are excellent with academic results, that's important, of course. Learning, learning properly, having a good teacher. But you want a teacher who also has that element of refinement and the element of a God-fearing and something that's connected to higher purpose than some arrogance of academic studies. Additionally, you want someone who is dedicated to the cause. In our case, we're talking about a chesedisha cause, the Rebbe's cause, the Rebbe's in Yanim. That is part of training the student that when they're learning Gemara, or Mishnais, or Tanakh, or Halacha, or whatever it is they're learning, or Chassidus, it's infused with a Chassidishkeit, <clears throat> with a sense of commitment, a sense of purpose, that we're going to use this in some way to fulfill our shlichus in this world, to spread the Chassidus, to spread the Mayonis wherever we go, to see that your life is dedicated to that purpose. So that's also a second thing, a sense of mission, a sense of purpose, which of course goes together with Yiddish Shemayim. If you can find and ask these questions, whether the school provides that, and sometimes through roundabout questions or asking, as I mentioned, others that have studied there, then you can get a good sense whether the school is focused on that. And at least if several teachers are focused on that, that can be a tremendous element. In addition, I mentioned before a mentor for the parents. A mentor for a student is an invaluable thing, having a mashpia that he or she can speak to someone they can trust, someone who will not judge them, someone who will not in any way break a confidence. You can simply talk. And sometimes you may need to interview some of the faculty, some of the mashpiyam, to see if that person has those elements. These are yet but some of the criteria that I would suggest. I'm sure there's more. If anybody wants to weigh in on this, please do so. You can simply submit a... Um, a, a uh, a comment on, on our anonymous forum at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. Another related question is Chabad schools. Hi there. I sent in a question a little while back for the Chassidus Applied regarding Chabad schools that we see other schools, not Chabad, producing better fruit. What can I tell the people of my Chabad house, which are Chabad, why they should send their kids to Chabad despite the... The fact that the fruit are seemingly better and more mentioned and, and they, they produce more mention, mean more a menschlichkeit than Chabad schools. Please let me know if this was addressed because I guess I missed it. Thank you. So why not send children to non-Chabad schools which produce better results, to sum it up? So yes, I did speak about this in episode 69, 215, 223, and somewhat related about a shul, the same idea, episodes 199 and 200. Briefly, I'm talk- this, this program is listened to by many people, not just Chabad Chassidim. So what I'm going to say now, obviously, is related to Chabad Chassid. Chabad Chassid does not take away from the value that other schools provide. There are excellent schools out there. Again, as I said earlier, you have to fit what your, student, what your child needs most and what you can provide. 
As far as a Chabad Chassid goes, there's the Yeshiva Temchit Mimim, or the different names it has in different cities, that the Rabbeim, Rebbe Rashab, the Fidika Rebbe, established. So obviously that should be the number one priority. If there's a fault in the school, maybe there's something that can be done about it. But that's what we should shoot for. Now, if all else fails, meaning for some reason this school doesn't fit your child, is it an option to go to another school that may not be Chabad? Of course there's such an option. You do what it takes. But I would suggest to a Chabad a person, you begin with something that's Chabad, whether it's in your town or another town, and find the best. If at the end of the day you have two schools, one Chabad, one non-Chabad, and one completely outshines the other in so many areas, there's still elements Chabad Chassidish, learning Chassidish, learning some of the Yisaitis, that even by osmosis, even if it's not the best school, you just pick up by osmosis the Kavana, the Rebetachtenim, what a Rebbe is, what the purpose of our lives. So you have to weigh the two, and I cannot give a blanket approach to this. This should be discussed with a mentor, with a mashpia, when you weigh all the different options. And every option should be looked at. But there's no question that Chabad has a lot to offer. And just like you don't just give up your father and look for another father or another family, you always try to work with your family. If there's some deficiency, either try to improve or try to complement it in some other way. Okay. And as I said, I gave you the episodes. Next question. Uncannily, this question was already planned before the event that happened yesterday in, um, in California. So the question is like this. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Can we make a connection between two negative events that happened in the same location? Say, hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I work in a school, and unfortunately, two of the teachers had unhealthy children, and I'm worried and sad for them. Does Torah say there's any connection or relation with the two? Is it trying to tell us something? Is there something wrong in this particular place? They should have something that happens to two people. Something we need to fix. Check mezuzahs. Work out something in the school, etc. I don't know, and I don't either want to say or give ideas... <clears throat> because we live in Golos and we just want to get out and add Moshe, we want Mashiach now. But what do I, or should I make of this? I don't want to come to conclusions that are negative. Is it just random and the opposite of Gedusha doesn't unite, so don't connect two unfortunate events? Or do we need to do something about it? Or is Hashem trying to tell us something? And if yes, what? Thank you. May we only hear Pesudas Tevis and may everyone... Be gesund and stark always. Mashiach now. Okay. I don't believe I ever addressed this particular topic. Obviously, we know the concept of Ashgach Protis. Ashgach Protis means divine providence. Even if something happens that's not a positive thing, we can't just ignore it. You have to learn lessons from it. Introspection. Like I mentioned before, the Rambam in the beginning of Laws of Tainis, of fasting, he says it's cruel to think that the events just happen. Everything has to be a lesson in life to you. If it happens twice, seems to dictate that you have to even give more attention. And yes, maybe there is some, something going on. But we have to avoid going over to the line of destiny, that this is unfortunately a place that has a negative destiny. That we have no right to say. Because at best, 
even if there is a predisposition for something negative, we're not compelled. We always can write over it. We see this from the different months and times of the year. There are times, like in the Sphere of Same, we don't make weddings. That doesn't mean that guaranteed something negative is going to happen, God forbid, or the nine days. It's a predisposition, and we are more careful, and we are sensitive to it. But there's no such thing as controlling your destiny. So the fact that something negative does not mean that something, God forbid, negative is going to happen again. And yet, on a positive note, we have to take our lessons. And yes, maybe look at something and see, is there a pattern? Is there some cause that may be affecting something? As far as spiritual causes, most of us are not experts, and I wouldn't venture there. We have to look with our seichel, with our intelligence, and try to see. You see in a classroom, several students suffering from a certain issue, a certain commonality, it would be wise to look at what, what, what may be the cause. It just is the intelligent way to go. But I want to avoid the type of panic or scare and fright. No, negative things are happening. This is a place that's cursed, God forbid. No, that's not the way we think. Okay. Good. Let's move on now. We are by the next question. We've been doing davening every week, another thing on davening. So I have something this week, a question that recently came in on prayer being so central to chsidis. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I understand that as mere creations, we are unworthy of praying and communicating with God. Nevertheless, we are commanded that when we are in need of something, we should pray to Hashem for it, to God for it. But often our prayers are not answered, likely because as humans we are unworthy. So what's the kunz? What's the kunz? What's the trick? What's the point? Meaning, okay. So I've discussed the points of davening and whether God hears our davening or not a number of times. Obviously, he definitely hears. I shouldn't even have said or not. So the episodes discussed this was 18 through 20, 133, 140, 182, 199 through 201, 203, 252 through 257. So yes, api mitzvah esed that not what was later added, is to daven when you're in need, which means God's, God is going to respond to your need. And we see this as a given, because God listens to all prayers. There's no such thing as not listening to a prayer. Whether he will decide to give and grant, and how to grant, that's up to Hashem. So the first thing that must be stated unequivocally, that the fact that, that prayers are answered. They may not be answered right now, they may not be answered the way you want them to be answered. But they're all answered. The Shalom explains that when prayers, they open up gates that are, let's say, closed. Sometimes you open a few gates and there's still more gates, so you need to pray again. So the prayer is an idea that we continuously have this relationship and partnership with God and we pray and we express ourselves and in some way or another we will get our answer. If we're blessed, it may come immediately in a very revealed way. Sometimes it comes in a different way. So to say that we're unworthy even if we're unworthy, we pray for that too. We say, even though we're unworthy, but you, God, you're our Father, and we're your child. Please listen. Please respond. And we have the full right to do so. Obviously, being worthy, and that's why we say other other things we say in prayers. Heidos, acknowledgments, gratitude, bakoshes, and, um, and we say praises. We praise God, as I mentioned, so all these things are part of also creating a conducive environment for appropriate davening. So when you prepare by saying thank you, by saying, as I said, praises and hedos and, and, and bakoshas and requests, so then 
when we talk about our needs, it becomes a lot easier and more conducive that Hashem will respond, as the Altarev explains in Tanya and other places that's explained in Nigla and many places, the different structure of davening, as we've also discussed in this program a number of times. Okay. Let's now do some follow-up. So we have two follow-up. One was about internet addictions, which was discussed in episode 256. So I, I already covered one, one follow-up in episode 257. I'll do another one now. In response to inappropriate content addictions, thank you for openly addressing the, this painful issue. I think it would be very beneficial for people who are asking for help with this issue to be guided to 12-step programs. I know you did mention essay briefly in your answer, but it seemed your focus was more on talking to someone and the Hasidic teachings that would help. I understand your answer about taking about talking to someone helps with a shame, but unfortunately talking to someone who is not so knowledgeable in this area might not, ha- might not have the practical benefits necessary. I know someone who was struggling for many years and I think did ask rabbis and was guided to Torah Musar sources for help. But for some people, this may not be sufficient. Maybe for some it would, but for, for people who are asking this question and really want help and haven't been able to do it alone, they may be on the path to real problematic addiction. In that instance, a 12-step program may really be more helpful than talking to someone who does not have the knowledge to be able to help them. I also think guardyoureyes.com is a great resource for the firm world. People might benefit from being directed there for help. A little about step one and two of the 12 steps might be help, might help people see benefit in looking to get help there. I guess what I'm saying is that yes, for some people it might be a habit that they can work on breaking out of, but some people might actually have developed a serious addiction that they are powerless over. There are studies that show brain changes, etc. and need the addiction treatment in order to break free. Thank you for your sensitivity in mentioning how demoralizing demoralizing it is for the actors as well. Also, I think a lot of single people make the mistake of thinking this is something that goes away when they get married. I think it should be pointed out that marriage doesn't cure this, and anyone still single and struggling should best deal with this before marriage. Another thing it might be worthwhile to mention is when, is when where, spouses, where spouses can find support if their spouse is struggling with this issue, again, the appropriate 12-step meetings. I'm sending these suggestions from my own recent experience with this issue. Please don't read it as, as a whole, but if you find any of these points relevant to include in a follow-up, feel free to include them. Again, thank you for addressing this. Your heartfelt words, your heartfelt words show how much you care and are appreciated. I actually felt it was appropriate to read it as is because you make a lot of interesting points. I have to take issue with a few of them, which again, it's case by case. I cannot say for everyone. But number one, you mentioned about that marriage is a person should heal all before marriage. Yes, they have to get it under control and cannot expose another person to be affected by it going into marriage. But working with a good professional sometimes can help also the dating process, can help along, because marriage creates a seriousness that causes you to actually want to change. Now, obviously, anything that's going to affect your spouse, your future spouse, has to be addressed. So it has to be done with discretion. That's one point I wanted to make. As far as Chassidus and his 12 steps and so on. Look, I mentioned this and I mentioned time and again. 
Torah gave, was given to us to help us deal with every possible issue, especially chassidus. Includes these addictions. I wasn't even suggesting going to someone who doesn't understand, can't, is not sensitive, doesn't appreciate. I'm talking about within the chassidus shavelt, mashpim, who do understand and do know the psychological elements. And some of them actually have been trained in the therapeutic methods and know about 12 steps and so on. They bring into the picture a chassidus approach, which often secular therapists don't have and are lax about, and certain things that they even recommend that may not even be healthy or appropriate, that don't really solve the situation. But at the same time, we have to appreciate and know that we have today many resources, and when you're dealing with such issues, it's important to get every possible help. Having a therapist, having a mentor, a mashpia, plus them recommending and going to a program, 12-step program or meetings or other type of interventions is the best of all worlds, and that way you deal with it. And hopefully we can eradicate this and ways to just, coming from Pesach, clean up all the chomets and go forward, make the right resolutions and have the right support and the right supervision to really be able to hold up your commitment to living a pure and sanctified life and building a very beautiful and a beautiful home and family with a loving spouse and fulfilling the calling of your life. Okay. We'll do some more follow-up, but because of time, let me go to another follow-up, which was about the Rambam. Last week we spoke about a learning Rambam. Is it appropriate some sections to learn because maybe a young person, a teenager or so on, areas of the Rambam that may be too, too explicit. So I discussed it last week. Here's a last two weeks ago, I should say, an episode 257. In regards to the question posed, if it's appropriate for children to learn all parts of Rambam. Firstly, my experience is that as a kid, when learning those parts, it was very confusing for me, and definitely would have been helpful if someone would have explained these things to me. And exactly as you said, no parts of Torah should be skipped, should be skipped, about, should be skipped over. And just to quote a sikha from the Rebbe, translated in English, quote, in learning Chumash and Nach, no matter, no matter should be skipped over, such as Yehuda and Tomar, David and Basheva, and the like. The material should be learned according to the foundation of our sages, end quote. This is from Sikhin Tovshin Chavches, from the Sikhin Kedish, in volume 1, page 506. Over here we see the Rebbe's view exactly the advice you gave. Thanks for all your hard work. Okay, thank you for that. And it confirms what I discussed back, as I said, in episode 257. Now, the Chassidus question is next. We do every week a Chassidus question. Here's the question. I'm Bittl. The question is, what is Bittl and how can I begin to perceive Hashem and His unity in the right way instead of some obscure concept? In detail, Shalom of Rachel, Rabbi Jacobson. I wanted to know if you could please explain the Bittl experience. I'm struggling to understand what it means to contemplate in loftier concepts, which I feel whenever I think about God and how He is removed from this world, etc., etc. I feel like my brain just takes me to a black hole, and that's what I interpret as the Bittl experience, which to me feels empty, and pointless. Hashem is not black. I know from living in this world that Hashem is so beautiful. But what is Bittl? And how, in my, in my mind's eye, do I begin to perceive Hashem and His unity in the right way instead of just a black hole? Thank you. So first let me refer you to episodes 188 and 208, where I discuss Bittl in practical terms. And then let me say this. First let's begin with Bittl. Let's demystify it, decipher it, and the... De- de- uh, the, the uh, what should I say? 
eliminate its overwhelming element. Every one of us experiences bitl, maybe multiple times a day, and definitely throughout our lives. Bitl is simply shedding one layer of skin to assume another one. When you grow from a child into an adult, you go through the awkwardness of adolescence. A newborn baby comes out through the birth pangs of her mother. Every creativity is a, is a child of frustration. Before you write something, before you present something, there's always the frustration, the confusion that precedes it. There are many, many multiple examples Chassidus gives for Bittl. The rotting, the, the deterioration of a seed as it grows into a sapling and to a, ultimately into a plant and a tree. Because as long as it's still in its earlier shape, its earlier identity, it cannot gain and assume a new identity. You have to melt a piece of gold to turn it into a beautiful ornament. The melting is the bitl. What does it mean in Aveda? The, fa- the classic example in Chassidus Rabbi Zayda, who mastered Talmud Bavli, the Babylonian Talmud, fasted, the Gemara Baba Mitzvah says, in order to learn the methodology of the Jerusalem Talmud. That's bitl. Sometimes a methodology, as good as it is, doesn't allow you to gain a new methodology. When you're sitting before a teacher, suspend and for a moment be quiet, quiet down your ideas and thoughts and just listen and absorb a new idea. That's bitl. When you're being trained for a job, you just come in with all your old habits or all your preconceived notions, you're not going to learn. Training means listening. Training means following guidelines. All this is bitl, and bitl is necessary in order to grow. So now let's apply it to Hashem, to Avedis Hashem. It means we, are, we have an ego, we have self-interest, we have our own self-absorbed lives. Bitl means put yourself aside and think why you need it, like the Alter Rebbe said to that chassid, who came with a whole grocery list of needs, that this is not happening, and that's not happening, and this, the thing that he needs is not being fulfilled. And the Alter Rebbe finished, waited for him to finish and said, you told me what you need. What do you need it for? So Bittl is thinking not just what you need. How do I fulfill my needs? But what do you need it for? What are you giving? What are you bringing? It's a secret to relationships and to marriage. To everything healthy requires a form of Bittl. So Bittl means putting yourself aside and looking at something bigger than you are. Dalif Nemiat That you see and recognize and stand in awe of something beyond yourself. And that should not be something that is a black hole. Yes, God is beyond us. That's a, set, a sense of awe. When you stand before a great wonder of nature, you have bitl. You're standing in awe. You put yourself aside. When you stand before God, the same. That doesn't mean you have to understand God in the fullest sense, but you know He's not you. You know, like one person once interpreted, that ani is not lefanecha. You know that the ani, the you, is not God, and God is not you. That already is a level of growth. Then you learn. As you grow, as I mentioned earlier in this program, as you grow, you learn more levels, and you learn to understand more about God, and then as he explains in Vyadaita, the Maimon, famous Maimon of Eschanon, that today's, today's amuna is tomorrow's knowledge. And then you climb the ladder, and think of it like a horizon. As you go higher, the horizon becomes greater. So what you, today you internalize now you look and say, God is even greater than that. And as you, grow, you climb the ladder, as you grow, you become more in awe, and you have more bitl to higher levels. So it's a process. Everybody has to begin where they are, step by step. You step, step one, you see, ah, there's a bigger picture. Step two, a bigger picture. And this is true with all knowledge. Tell me a body of knowledge where you don't grow in that way. Today you know something, you know ABC. Then you learn more. 
Then you learn math. You learn other topics. This is secular topics, like, like holy topics. And as you grow, you realize, wow, there's a lot more. This all is bittal as you're recognizing there's something beyond you at this point. Then later you master that, and then there's something beyond that. Okay. Now, two weeks ago, in episode 257, we announced the winners of this year's My Life Chassidus Applied Essay Contest. I just announced the names and the titles of the essays, but I did not review what the essays were about. They are now posted at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife and go to Essays 2019 and you'll see those essays. We can continue posting the top essays in the order that they were marked, meaning the numbers that they received, the scores they received from the evaluation of the judges. So I'm going to review now the top four essays, the, the ones that were marked, the number one essay, the $10,000 prize, and then the number two essay, the $3,600 prize, and the two that were tied for third place, $1,000 prize. So here we are. The top winner was Ageless by Yelet Skinner, Southfield, Michigan. And the essay was actually described by some of the judges as being not only a winning essay, but actually helped transform their own view on aging. And one judge even wrote, this is exactly what Chassidus Applied is all about. Taking a topic of Chassidus and making it so real, they actually can help you deal with the aging process. And that's what this essay is about. It's called Ageless. And no one really wants to discuss the fears they associate with aging. The reason I'm choosing a topic most dread is because Chassidus provides powerful tools for not only easing our deepest fears concerning aging, but shows us how we can turn those fears around to create a paradigm shift that will bring inner peace, deep joy, and less wrinkles to boot. Now, this particular essayist has credibility because she herself is a medical aesthetician, someone who works in beautifying people, and explains essentially what inner beauty is and outer beauty, and really does a great job of talking about how society values all the anti-aging methods of external beauty, superficial, and Achsidis, talking with Sada and other examples, actually told, teaches us what real beauty is, a beauty from within that shines without, which then takes the whole aging process and turns it on its head. Also discusses the whole process, why we age. Gemara talks about it. Once upon a time we didn't age, people just died. And how that, the analyzes that as well. Talking about the dignity of age and many examples, both from, from Chassidus from, and from stories in Mechut Deburim and other places. All around an excellent essay. I just want to point out, winning essays are not always the one that you may read and say it's a much better essay. A winning essay has the points, the highest points in all the categories that the guidelines for the essays included. And this essay did win. So congratulations. An excellent, excellent essay. And hopefully it could really make a mark on the whole process since the aging population is growing in the Western world, especially in the United States. So this is a theme that's really relevant to so many people as they go, the baby boomers, as they move into middle age and to seniority. So that is the theme, and read it on your own, and, and you'll appreciate it much more than what I just summed up. The next essay is a Hebrew essay. We had a very strong showing from Hebrew essayists. Some got the highest marks as well. And um, this one is called, in English, The Hasidic Method of Dealing with Fear. 
In Hebrew, Hadrachas Tedas Achsidis Benegele Tipul Bapachad Vachered Bashval and Mekedis Teronim Kedmim Vachen the Psychologia Amadanit. Which means dealing with fear, the Hasidic method, in comparison with sources, earlier sources, Tedas sources on the topic, and modern psychology. And that's exactly what Ariel Neve from Betar Elite Israel does. He gives a whole introduction and speaks about fear from different perspectives, different schools of thought, and how they deal with it. And Hachsidis has a completely new revolutionary way to deal with fear. An excellent essay as well, very close to essay number one, but as I get the points go, every essay has its own particular strengths and weaknesses, and really as a comparative study of dealing with fear and, um, and, and, and concerns uh, from many different angles and directions. And ultimately... What Chassidus talks about it and how a person can actually transform themselves in dealing with fear. There have been many essays on the topic written in, different, in previous years as well as this year, but what he does here is unique and stands out in a truly practical guide of dealing with it using faith, of course, using action and using other tools that Chassidus teaches how to elevate fears and actually transform them into something positive. So thank you for that excellent essay. And finally, well not finally, two more to go. So the next essay is The Essential Yes of a Strong No. This is third, the, the, the two that were tied for third place by Mushka Silberberg, Lincolnwood, Illinois. And explaining exactly as the title suggests, it's a provocative title, The Essential Yes of a Strong No. Why saying no is not a weakness. The problem, it feels so much nicer to be able to say yes than have to say no. Western society has inculcated within us a certain perspective, the romanticization of yes. Since infancy, people are bombarded with slogans such as follow your heart or phrases like why not, which strongly suggest the idea that saying no implies that a person is weak because he, she cannot say yes. And continues to describe the problem of that attitude. And going on to saying how important it is to be able to say no, an actual no is an unbelievable form of yes and really takes a, a deep concepts of chassidus, that's one of the strengths in this essay, deep concepts of chassidus of gvura, kelim, and tzimtzum, and ex- uses that to explain how though, even though those seem to be no's, they're negatives in the sense that they withhold, they conceal, they limit, they measure, yet they are the unbelievable powers of yes, they carry an intensity that even a yes, a forward flow of ur, of gilui, does not have. Another excellent essay with a breakdown, a takeaways, lessons, practical lessons. And I, I found one particular exercise, um, actually a physical exercise, a drawing exercise to be very, really, very unusually good and helpful in achieving a new level of consciousness, a new level of Aveda, of Chassidus applied. And the second, second, the tie to third place was an essay, Rediscovering the Joy of Giving from Self-Love to Selfless Love by Adel Cohen. Introduction, have you ever tried to give expecting to feel good about your kindness and come out completely drained? And goes on to talk about a new way of looking at giving. Not as something that's an extension of your own self-love, but of selfless love. Another brilliant essay, revolutionary. Ideas that we may have heard and have definitely heard, but the way it's positioned here, the way it's brought together with the sources 
And actually, comparing it also to Maslow's hierarchy of needs is really well done and can be a tremendous contribution to the topic, which is yet another criteria for these essays, that it actually can make a contribution in the larger world on these issues uh, by introducing a whole new approach that can help people grow and, and see themselves and their lives in a new light. What Chassidus says about self-care and loving others with his sources, again, very good breakdown of practical applications and exercises. So thank you for that. And with that, we conclude this week's My Life Chassidus Applied episode 258. We will be reviewing essays as we go from the, the as I said, by the marks. Everyone should have a end of Chedesh Nissen, uh, taking the power of Pesach, of transcendence, extending it through Isruchag, which still is in the shadow and still carries that energy into the rest of the week, into the rest of the month, and ch- channel that into the month of Ir, to the rest of our lives, with a true transcendence in Eris and Kalim, Ratzay and Shuv, as we discussed, and we should ultimately merit to have the Gaul in this month of Nisan. And there should no longer be tzad, no longer pain. And any pain should be temporary and be transformed into the greatest forms of simcha and joy. Everyone be well. Every, we're here every Sunday now on a regular schedule. The holiday is over. Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m., my life, Chassidus applied. Call Tuv.